0: welcome to the show. Based on the fact that he has been featured by the New York Times, NPR, Southern Living, and Charleston Magazine for his work, it might surprise you to learn that Steve Palmer lived in an abandoned house in downtown Atlanta as a teenager. After a long hospitality career that spanned restaurants like the Peninsula Grill and hotel companies like Ritz-Carlton, Steve founded the Indigo Road Hospitality Group in 2009 in Charleston, South Carolina. Beginning with the celebrated restaurant Oak Steakhouse on historic Broad Street in Charleston, Indigo Road now owns and operates more than 16 concepts throughout the Southeast, with several more under development. Today, we are obviously going to talk about food and beverage, but before we jump in, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals, and random people off the street who have burning questions. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Ravi. Here is what Ravi has to say. We are considering the addition of CBD and other botanical beverages to our bar are those appropriate for non-drinkers or people in recovery how do we sell them and position them correctly steve i'm wondering what you think about this
1: sure I mean, that's a great question you know um as a sober person uh, i think there's a lot of um there's black and whites like I can never drink again. Um, one day at a time, of course. Um, <clears throat> there's gray areas. I, I I'm I'm always very careful on on not being an authority quote unquote on sobriety because really all I have is my story and my experience. Um, I will tell you for me things like na beers i i don't drink them i don't want to taste something that tastes like beer right i mean alcohol was the thing that almost killed me um specifically to cbds when you talk in the sober community it's kind of a mixed bag um you know i will take a cbd if it has no thc in it and by none i mean zero not point oh oh because psychologically, I now I know I'm taking something that has THC in it and I just from an addiction and recovery point of view, so I'm pretty leery of those things. I, I and I want to be clear. I fully get the benefits for many, 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 many people. My wife takes them, she's not in recovery, so I'm not I'm not bashing CBDs. Just as a person in recovery, it's kind of like we've seen some of the spirit free spirits. But they still have 00005 percent alcohol. Um, that's not for me. Uh, that that you know, there's a there's an old fashioned spirit out there. I really don't want to taste something that tastes like an old fashioned. Like I, but but for other people who are sober, curious, are perhaps limiting alcohol just as a lifestyle choice. I think all those things are are great, and there's no conflict. But, but specifically for people in recovery. I'm a little leery just to be candid,
0: Understood. So my guess then is that you would encourage or would not encourage them to list this stuff in the non-alcoholic portion of a menu, for example. Like maybe we have Correct. to think of a cool term for it, like right. sober-ish or I don't right, know. That's, right, right. You know, yeah, exactly. something like no, that. No, no,
1: that, that's a great term. and 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 yeah, I mean, I think there's, many people who can enjoy those kinds of things and, and again I'm I'm only speaking for myself it's just not something that I would be 100% comfortable with
0: well I think that's some good insight for Robbie so thank you you grew up in Atlanta and you worked at a Chinese restaurant when you were age 13 which you have I called do. sort of your first food or first taste memory can you tell me about that experience
1: Sure, it was at Yin's Chinese on Shambly Dumwoody road. Um, i was I was the dishwasher, and I was the only American working in the restaurant. And every night they would feed me, but there wasn't a lot of English. And so they really wouldn't tell me what I was eating. They would just slide me a plate of food. So every night I would have this amazing dish, and it was I, it was it was one of my, it was one of my first food memories where I remember going, wow what is this and and uh and it, it sort of began my lifelong curiosity about cuisine for sure
0: and how was the job itself did you love it did you dread <laughs> it well i made
1: 3 dollars an hour cash nice. under the table okay. which i thought that thought was a big deal in 19 uh, 13 it would i would have been 1982 1983 so that was a big deal. Uh, I loved it. I loved the energy of a restaurant. I think that was my first sort of view into the, the chaos that is restaurants.
0: The Indigo Road restaurant group ultimately expanded into hotels and became hospitality. And actually, the president of lodging, Larry Speltz, was on one of our very first Loading Dock episodes from the Hunter Conference in 2022. That's episode 30 if you want to check it out. Although you have worked in hotels, you are clearly a restaurant person through and through to the core of your soul. So what drove the expansion into hotels?
1: Sure. So, uh, you know, I, as you mentioned, I work for Ritz-Carlton, I worked for Ginn Resorts. And I, I, you know, hospitality, what I love about hotels is is in a restaurant, right? We have you for a couple of hours and we have very a very specific, we're feeding you, this is your meal. Um, in, a, in a hotel, you have all these opportunities, the, the arrival experience, the way the room is made, uh, the amenities. You have like it's like all these extra moments you get to surprise and delight a guest. So, I, I when I travel, I stay in boutique hotels. I've always been hotel curious, um, and so it it had long been a goal that at some point, um, you know, we were doing food and beverage in boutique hotels. Um, and so for me, it was like if we want to sort of for us hospitality is at the core of everything we do. And it, it, we wanted to expand that into into the lodging piece.
0: Let me ask you. So I have a lot of hotel people on this show, and when they tell their loading dock stories, it's always like somebody acting like a wild maniac, right? And so there's a sort of undercurrent in the hotel business where people are like, people go to hotels and lose their minds. Do you think that's true in restaurants too? Or do you think people can hold it together for like, when you said a couple of hours, that's what made me think of it. Like, can people hold it together long enough to eat dinner? And then they just, all bets are off when they go back to the hotel.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: oh, I don't know. I think, I I, I mean, listen, we're always going to have a different guest, right? Um, I think it's how you respond. And, and some of our, some of our best customers have been people that we started off on a wrong foot with. And it was the way that we handled that. Um, I think a little bit different, at least I again speaking only from my experience, you know, um, I think it's about authentic hospitality. And and in the hotel business, it feels like, and I might be wrong, and a hundred hotel people might shoot me. Um, you have the big brands, right? And so, in a lot of ways, you have commoditized hospitality and I'm not saying there aren't chain restaurants but you you have chain restaurants from a price point only go to a certain level you have commoditized hospitality all the way up to you know a thousand dollars a night so true when you're you know and and when you're interacting with with people that have been trained from an SOP and they have been taught this is the way we speak this is the way that we do this Um, There's consistency in that, and I have a lot of respect for that, but it doesn't allow for the humanity in hospitality. And if we, we define hospitality, so we say service is technical and transactional. It's bringing you the right plate of food, checking you in in an efficient manner. Hospitality is how we make you feel. So if hospitality is an emotion, if you're not encountering people that are coming to it from an authentic, genuine place, how authentic and genuine can it be? So um, that's a very long-winded roundabout way to answer your question. But I, I just feel I, I feel like um, inherently in restaurants, there's a little more authentic, authenticity. Not all the time, but in certain circumstance.
0: There's certainly the right ingredients for that, for sure. For sure. Sure. What is Ben's friends and why did you co-found it?
1: Um, so Ben's friends was founded. Um, ben Murray was a chef that worked for us. He opened Canoe with me in Atlanta in 1995. Um, ben, I hadn't, I had been out of touch with Ben. Then reconnected through a mutual friend and came to help us open a restaurant. Um, and we did not, I hadn't seen Ben. I never, uh, Ben came to work. Ben was happy. Ben was jovial. Uh, Ben worked his butt off. Um, Ben left work one night and shot himself and committed suicide. And as I started having the conversation with his 80 year old mom, what came out was that Ben had been in and out of rehab and been in and out of detox and that Ben was struggling. And, and, what was so sad to me about that moment in time was in the kitchen when we opened were three sober chefs, who would have done anything to help Ben. So I was so struck by, what is it about our culture that we can't ask for help? What is it about our restaurant ethos where drugs and alcohol are just an accepted form of behavior? Uh, and so Mickey Bax, who is a another sober restaurant person, and I we co-founded a group and what we thought would be a local group in Charleston, uh, just a weekly support group, all Ben's friends for sober people in the industry run by sober people in the industry to help people in the industry that were struggling with addiction. Um, Shortly after that, Anthony Bourdain, of course, uh, the the chef personality committed suicide. And our phone, I mean, it was really a zeitgeist. I, I mean, every Major publication in the country that wanted to write about mental health wanted to write about what's been friends, and so quickly, chefs and restaurateurs around the country were reading articles going, Well, I'm one year sober, I'd like to do this. And so, to date, we're in 29 cities in America, um, we have 21 Zoom meetings a week. Um, it, there are hundreds, thousands of people attending Ben's Friends meetings now. And and um, I'm, I'm really, really grateful and proud that the, the organization is obviously so much bigger than Mickey and I now. And there's so many great souls that are involved and, and um, just really honored to I, I, the, the hospitality has given me everything that I have. Everything. Um, it gave me the ability to earn a living, a roof over my head. Um, Given the privilege to be able to give back, uh, I can't think of anything that's more, more incredibly gratifying.
0: That's really cool. And we'll link to Ben's friends in the show notes. This is a hard question to phrase, but the idea of the, the word culture has emerged over probably the last 5 years as such a key component in hospitality companies, but one that I think folks have a rough time defining as anything but positive or anything but like, Oh, our culture is that we're great. Okay, cool. What does that mean? Can you talk about how culture plays out at Indigo Road and how important it is for you?
1: absolutely so our culture um which i think the definition i'm I'm, i paraphrase poorly but it's an agreed upon set of ideas and beliefs that informs our behavior um our culture starts with the idea that in order for our guests to have a truly hospitable experience our employees must first have a truly hospitable experience um They need to feel safe. They need to be in a positive environment. There doesn't need to be drugs and alcohol in the building. There doesn't need to be a a manager or a chef yelling or or screaming at them. Um, They need to be compensated fairly. They need to be given a path for growth. We need to provide benefits. Um, You know, I always believe that if all the technical elements are the same, right, Your food comes, it's hot, it tastes well, you know, all the technical stuff. If it's just done by people that really like what they're doing, you as the guest are going to naturally have a better experience. You just are. And the food will
0: taste better.
1: It'll taste better. Happy cooks cook happy food. When food is cooked with love, it tastes better. And when you can do that, and and it's hard to do that 365 days a year, it's hard. but when you can guest ultimately, even if they can't put their finger on it, sometimes they can see it. They're like, Everybody loves their job here. Other times they're just like, God, we had the best time. When they they experience that, they want more of it. Right. Um, and I always say our 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 hotels and restaurants with the best culture are the busiest. And that's not accident, it's not an accident. And um It was really Danny Meyer who, you know, his watershed book, Setting the Table, that he wrote in 2005, he really gave a lot of this language. I think a lot of us were feeling this way, but we didn't know. And Danny really gave us, gave it a voice. Um, Will Gadara, a good friend, has written Unreasonable Hospitality. Um, You know, the idea is simply that hospitality enriches and is restorative to your soul. And I believe that hospitality has the power to tra- transform people's lives. I, my own life has been transformed by it. I see our guest life. I see our employees. So our culture is one of internal hospitality, put simply. Employees have to feel like they're having a hospitable experience in order for our guests to have
0: that. I love that so much. And both of those books that you mentioned were life-changing books for me. Right. This is a little bit, maybe, the flip side of what we were just talking about, but there's a lot of discourse about the idea that restaurants aren't back yet after the pandemic, that food is not back yet. For I think a variety of reasons, ranging from being short staffed to supply chain issues, et cetera, et cetera. Do you have a take on that? What do you think? Do you feel like your restaurants are back? Like you're going to be like, Nope, they're a hot mess.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, the last 2 years has been... Many books will be written, or they should be (laughs) written. Um, We had this incredible demand from customers. So like business wasn't the problem. Doing the business, having enough staff to do the business being able to buy products and 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 present them in an affordable fashion, which we're still not there yet by any measure. Um, I think if you figured out how to survive over the last two years, you're good. Um, we did, and and in some ways we've prospered. Um, I think every operator would say we're paying more than we've ever paid. That's good, right? I think consumers would say everything's never been more expensive, but the, the two things are inextricably linked, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if if your payroll costs are going to go up 20%, we don't have 20% in our margins, you know, it's going to have to, th- there's going to have to be some give and take. Um, so I, would, and and specifically in the last three or four months, I would say we are no longer, the first year and a half, it was do we have enough people to open tonight like and it was every day wow we got and it would be invariably of course we wouldn't notice at 9 30 in the morning it would be at 4 45 15 minutes before we were supposed to open we still need more people to want to work in hospitality Uh, i think the biggest change is is it, it just everything is more expensive
0: this is going to sound like a mean question to ask. Now that we know that people are struggling with staff still, but I have to ask it because I know you agree with me. One of the things I think that you and I have in common is a full-on distaste for restaurants or hotels or other businesses that sort of give you a list of rules and regulations for how uh, to do business with them, like how how yeah. they will accept your money. So I wanted to see if we could both come up with a couple of examples of what that looks like and what that feels like so that our listeners can maybe look around in their business and go, ooh, maybe we should calm that down.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, my wife would tell you anytime we're out traveling or we're experiencing hospitality, the minute I start getting a lot of rules, I'm like, oh, again, back to that kind of commoditized, mindset right here are the rules that completely rejects the human connection that uh, hospitality is supposed to bring hospitality is supposed to be for you not to you right <laughs> and 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 um yeah i mean you know here are the the low hanging for the age old like no substitute things right now i am not at all advocating that if you're sitting in an Asian restaurant and if they don't have like we have Japanese restaurants, we don't have ranch dressing, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm not I'm not advocating, but but I am saying if you can do it, you should do it. If somebody wants something on the side, just give it to them. Like it's not a big deal. I I know that there was a vision and there was a this and you know um not seating in complete parties. Why? Rules. Yeah rules and and you know it, it's so it's a training issue, right All of this is a is a reflection of the leadership a reflection of the ownership uh, always um because people don't want to get in trouble by doing so and you know, and all of this by the way, has zero to do with hospitality um to the the too cool for school restaurant you know, you're lucky to be here. yeah, you're lucky we're serving you and i i just reject and rebel against all of that and and you know like i think most consumers like if you can forgive a lot if you see that somebody's sincere engaged and trying like you know i forgot to ring your order and i am so sorry the order is in i'm going to send you a round of drinks totally made made a mistake and i just wanted to apologize okay you're good you know if that server is like you can tell that they sincerely are like i really messed up Mm -hmm. um you know i i I, and and when you when you have the opposite of that i always say that indifference is the enemy of hospitality and and when you get in when you experience indifference like i could care less really at the end of the day as long as i follow the rules Uh um yeah, I, I, I mean, I could. My wife. It's just funny. A couple times recently, we've experienced the rules, and they and rules do not work for the customer. They work solely. It is a group of individuals that have said, "This is what's easiest for us." This is now. It can be wrapped around well in order for us to ensure the guest experience. That's crap. You just <laughs> you you know that's crap the not seating complete part there is not one restaurant operator in the world that can tell me what the benefit to the customer <laughs> is by not seating them all at one time i just it's absurd it's absurd and I and they're managing more. and they're managing to the exception and not the rule there was this one time that there was a ten top and five people showed up and five people showed up 30 minutes later yes You're making rules for the exception. Most people show up on time.
0: Right. Like how a workplace, rather than confront a specific person about the fact that they're not wearing deodorant, will send out mass emails and memos and have whole, you know, meet staff meetings about hygiene versus just taking the one guy and being like, bro. Here you go. It's right, so silly. Right. It's amazing. You're
1: man- managing to the exception. You have to, you know, and I just, I manage to the rule. And the rule is most customers show up on time and most customers are inherently good. Like It just feels like when you when you have a bunch of rules, clearly I'm passionate about this, <laughs> um, you know, you're just immediately drawing a line in the sand and saying, it's us versus you. Here are the <laughs> rules of engagement. We're not going to engage with you unless you follow our rules, and I, I just I don't subscribe to that. I that has not thirty years in that has not been my experience. It just it, it is not. I don't I don't see the world of hospitality that way.
0: In a recent survey, someone who I did not pay to say this said that Top Floor is a must-listen for hospitality people, insightful, funny, informative, with amazing guests. Someone else said, I listened to one and now I am becoming addicted. I also did not pay this person. And yet another person called the show an entertaining interview offering tricks... Learnings, anecdotes, and heartwarming tales from hoteliers. No money changed hands for that one either. Here's my point somebody somewhere likes listening to Top Floor. And if you are not sharing the show with your friends and colleagues, you are really doing them dirty. I truly appreciate every minute you spend listening to Top Floor and would be really thankful. If you would follow the show wherever you listen, we like to make sure that our listeners come away from each and every episode of Top Floor with some really practical and specific tips that they can try either in their businesses or their personal lives. So, the first thing I'm going to ask you about is kind of a personal life slash business question. If someone is listening to our conversation, and knows that they have a coworker or suspects that they have a coworker with an addiction issue what should they do and the reason i'm asking you this question is that i think we've we've or at least those of us of a certain age have been told for many 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 years that people have to hit rock bottom they have to make a decision to get sober on their own so there's a fear that all you're going to do is ruin a relationship and it's not going to make any difference if you say something, if that makes sense. What do you think? Do you think that saying something ever works or is ever a good thing? Or should someone just sit back and wait to be asked for help?
1: Yeah, I get asked this question a lot. I'm glad you asked it. It's still really relevant. Um, so I was the product of an intervention. Um, I came to my work, um, Peninsula Grill that you mentioned, and the owner and the staff were sitting in an office and they said, you have a choice. You can go to rehab or you can clean out your office. Wow. And um, I went to rehab and I'm sitting here now. Uh, So I'm never going to say don't say anything. Got it. Um, I would say now I was, you know, I was bad off and I was doing a lot of cocaine and I was... I was clearly in a spiral. Um, I what you know? What's the worst alternative? You never say anything. Somebody overdoses and they're dead. Um, it is true that until somebody's ready to address their issue, they're not ready. However, and this is my big caveat to all of that, um, you may not be the conversation that gets them to finally look at the issue. But you may be the first. And by the third conversation, they may go, you know, I keep hearing this. Maybe I need to take a look at it. And I think as long as you're coming at it in a place of care and concern and not judgment, you know, if you come in hot and say you're drinking too much, probably not going to go well. If you come in and say, first and foremost, I want you to know I love you, care about you, but only want what's best for you. I'm very concerned about what I'm seeing. You're you're coming to work late, you don't look well, you seem scatterbrained, and it feels like drinking could be part of the issue, and I just want to see how you're doing. That feels so much better than, you know, my, my intervention was not kind, but that was what I needed at the time. Um, that most of the time does not work. I wanted to stand up and punch both of the individuals, (laughs) um, but I was ready. And, 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 and also disclosure, I had already been to rehab. So this was not the first time that I had, I knew I had a problem. Mm -hmm. I think somebody that has never seriously contemplated that they already know, to be honest, nobody wants to, nobody, Susan sets a goal. I'm going to become an alcoholic nobody and coming to that conclusion it's hard and it's usually when you've wrapped a car around a tree you've gotten a DUI I mean unfortunately addiction is so insidious because it's the only disease that tells you you don't have a disease right Cancer patients are not walking around saying I don't have cancer everything's fine they're like I'm doing chemo, I'm doing radiation I'm doing whatever it takes
0: wow that's a really good point
1: addiction is a disease it is a i have a disease that tells me i don't have a disease how in how nuts is that right and even at 21 years i've been sober (laughs) november 5th it'll be 22 years there are still times that that bottle of pinot noir looks great you know i mean it's never gonna go away so it's 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 anyway that i mean i it's hard. And when we see people struggling that are hard, it's hard. I don't I don't know that silence helps anybody. I just
0: I don't. That's a really helpful answer. I'm gonna shift gears to a little more lighthearted, but what I know you also get a give a helpful answer to, which is do you have any tips for how a restaurant business can start to move in the direction of Indigo Road in offering some of the perks and the benefits that you offer. You have barely scratched the surface about what you do for your team. And restaurants are such a low-margin business that I know that some of this stuff feels completely out of reach. To restaurant owners that are out there, so what do you think? Like, how do people start?
1: So yes, and 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 certainly there are benefits. Like, we have a home loan buying program, and I would love to talk to anybody about that because it doesn't cost as much money as you think it does. Um, but there are things that we do that I'm sure that somebody that owns one restaurant says that's awesome. I can't afford that. Um, the first thing we did, which I think was meaningful, was we removed alcohol from our restaurants, not for sale, for our customers, but there are no shift drinks. There are no sitting around the bar after work, getting drunk. Um, that one thing just creates a better environment. And it was an age-old, honor prediction, go um, do it somewhere else and let people know like, hey, when we're in this building, you're in a safe place. People aren't going to be under the influence. We're going to behave in a sane and rational manner. Um, so I think that was important. I think talking about mental health is, is super impactful. Um, we, we, offer, we offer free mental health counseling. Um, again, sounds like a big expense. The percentage of people that actually need to go see a counselor, it's relatively low. Um, There are plenty of people in the therapeutic community that work on a sliding scale of income. Um, But we we take a very bold statement and say, if you need to go talk to someone, we will pay for it. I am under no delusion that a lot of our staff, when they leave work at night, go out and do all the things that I did. But I want them to feel like in a world of complete and utter chaos right now, that coming inside our four walls is going to be a, a safe experience. And, you know, like to the degree that we can continue to do that. Um, I, I mean, I think it's I think as owners, it's our responsibility to make the industry better.
0: I love that. That's such good advice. We have reached the fortune telling portion of our show. Now is the time that you're going to predict the future. And then I'll come back and check on you and see if you were right. Okay. So, what is a prediction you have about the future of fine dining?
1: Fine dining. Um, those of us that were around in the '90s, we we all kind of lament the old days. Um, I think that fine dining will continue to show up, albeit maybe smaller restaurants, bigger cities. But I I think that people still crave that escapism that find that crew fine dining brings that sense of I'm here for this experience I've I've dressed up I've saved my money I booked in advance um you know I I I think that fine dining there will always be a place for fine dining I think um the pretentiousness that maybe we experienced in the 80s and the 90s maybe it won't be quite so precious um but sometimes precious is okay too you know <laughs> Um, you know, Sean Brock, a good friend, has a restaurant, Audrey in Nashville. Um, he is a big proponent of fine dining is not dead. Um, but it's hard. It's hard. Um, you know, when when oh eight oh nine hit and and the white tablecloths came off and the Edison bulbs went up and the <laughs> reclaim and the reclaim the reclaimed <laughs> wood a be- book
0: title. <laughs> when <laughs> the Edison, Edison bulbs went up, bulbs that's
1: went amazing. Up. Yeah, you know. And it was a shift. It was a shift in the whole industry towards a more, you know, rustic, homey, and you saw it in all the industrial design restaurants and all the warehouses that became restaurants. And I was one of the poster children for it. So, um, but I hope that fine dining always has a place because those special nights, man, they're, they're memorable.
0: All right. So if you could wave a magic wand and recreate one of those memorable nights, one of your past dining experiences, what would it be?
1: Oh, wow. Um, Goodness. Uh, I've had... (laughs) I mean, I've eaten all over the world. Um, Last summer, not the summer we just had, but my wife and I went to Italy and uh massimo bottura one of the most famous chefs in the world his the restaurant that he had that was number 1 was osteria francescana but he he's opened a small inn in modena it's called casa maria luigia and um you you come and you dine and it's 40 or 50 people and everybody gets the same thing but it's the greatest hits from osteria francescana it was pretty magical um you know um, being at uh at Il Pietro, San Daniel, and Positano. I know um I love Italy. Um, I love Japan. I don't know, man. Like what's your favorite <laughs> pair of shoes? It's hard to, you know, it's 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 hard to uh it's hard to there's been so many. Um but but I I I really uh I, a lot of them have happened in Italy for sure.
0: What is next for you and what's next for your company?
1: So we we had some big hotel openings coming this fall and, you know, construction right now is it's hard. <laughs> that would be the understatement of the decade. Um, so uh, the Flatiron Hotel Project um, in we're super excited about. Uh, 75 rooms, uh, an Italian restaurant named Luminosa that will open in February. Um and in Oku, that that our sushi concept that we haven't eaten of, we're going to Tampa, Florida, and I'm very excited about the Tampa market. There's a lot of really fun things happening in Tampa. We have a lot going on. I'm excited about so many things, but Flatiron we've been working on since 2017. So,
0: oh is, my uh, lord!
1: Well, yeah, she is. Um, she's she's been a stubborn girl, but it's a, it's a hundred year old. 100-year-old uh flat iron building that was, was built in downtown Asheville. so you know historic renovations are always they're they they they're so rewarding when you're done but the journey is man it's a journey
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, i've done enough of them now that they're always over budget they're they're never on time but when you get there you're like wow this was worth it all so Uh, I'm excited to show the world the Flatiron Hotel.
0: Ah, cool. Well, before we tell Steve goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Steve, what is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock?
1: Wow. Only tell you on the loading dock. Um... No, I I don't know if I can tell you that one. That one was bizarre, and somebody died in it, so it's a little morbid. (laughs) Um, You know. So I uh, right after this is a very personal story, but it's a it's a it's a happy story. Right after I got out of rehab, I was petrified. I was scared to death that I could, that I would even be able to work in the restaurant business. I was a sommelier, like how is this all gonna work and not drink? And the first night back to work, and I mean, I was like super anxious, just felt awkward. A server walked up and gave me a bottle of wine and said, hey, can you open this on the table, whatever? And I completely panicked. And I was like, I, I can't do this. There's there's no way I can do this. And I ran out of the restaurant. I gave the bottle to somebody else. And I went up the hotel, it had a rooftop. Uh, it was not bar, just a rooftop. And I went up and, and I just remember, like, I love this industry so much, and I don't want it to be defined by my alcohol, my my alcohol use. And this sense of calm came over me, and the word surrender came up, and I just knew everything was going to be okay after that. And I went back down, and uh, but I'll never forget that moment for the rest of my life. It was a it was a big moment.
0: Wow. Steve Palmer, thank you so much for being here. I know our listeners have made a list of restaurants to visit after they finished with this episode. And I really appreciate you riding up to the top floor.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 116. Jonathan Albano is our editor, producer, and all-around genius. He even wrote and performed our theme song with vocals by Cameron Albano. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And your rating or review will go a long way in helping us give you more of what you like.
1: Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode.